this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. Danny, we, uh, you had an interesting moment on Facebook recently <laughs> that regarded John McCain and his passing. Um, do you want to want to give us a little primer on that? Yeah, so I said, dearest me, I said something nice about John McCain on Facebook. I was, um, let's just be real, I was, um, I was at a bar. I was uh, having a few drinks. I was doing what I do on a typical weekend night, and word comes through that John McCain has passed away, which we knew was coming. And I said something nice about him. Now, I prefaced it all by saying that I voted against John McCain. I think he was a militarist. I think every foreign policy instinct he's ever had has been wrong. But I did say that, unlike other Republicans, he, on a few occasions, not many, not many, on a few occasions, he did jump the aisle to save, for example, Obamacare and a few other things. And it caused a big big hysterical response um most of my facebook friends are probably on the far left politically and i'm on the far left politically which any of the listeners know to be true but it caused an outcry and as i've looked back at some of the comments some of which were just hateful and ad hominem attacks and i ignore those but as I look, I actually kind of understand where people are coming from because a, a more holistic view of John McCain's career does demonstrate that he wasn't the innocent maverick that we've been led to believe he was. In many cases, he was a cynical uh, conservative who did what was necessary to further his agenda. So I, I actually do think there was some valuable critique of what I had written in the bar the moment he died. Um, but I still think that compared to the Trump era of Republican Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, unity on every issue – and unwillingness to critique anything about it, Republican policies, John McCain stands as sort of a voice in the darkness or an anachronism. Again, the listeners need to understand, I voted proudly against John McCain in 2008. I would vote against John McCain in 2008 10 times over. Um, but point to me a senator on the Republican side of the aisle today who would vote against the party on, well, anything but health care, for example. And I, I guess my point is it was, it was less about my, – my post was less about John McCain than it was about the changing dynamics of partisanship in the Senate. Now, that being said, I, I do want to say that some of my trolls and some of my critics on Facebook made really great points. 
because John McCain is not who the mainstream media wants you to believe he was. He was a extraordinarily conservative, extraordinarily cynical, and sometimes opportunistic senator. So, you know, maybe he's not the hero that the mainstream center right and center left wants you to believe. But it was a very it was a very interesting experience because it it showed me how polarized America was because me as a person of the left posting this caused me a lot of drama for at least a week. Well, I, I remember when I first saw it and I was, I was, I was right there with you. You know, it's, it, it's, we, we've come into this new paradigm of, that senior Republican leaders are people like Mike Pompeo. You know, he's somebody who did his statue, I don't know how we call that, obligatory time in the military and got out. And now what is left is the stuff of legend. You know, like when he was mentioning about that he served in the Gulf War when no such thing happened. But the right. the bigger problem, I think, is is that we have this very most people have this very pro-american pro-military pro-pow look of of john mccain and not not entirely their fault we get browbeat with those kind of things all the time but john mccain was a he, he was kind of a, an exceptional person in that regard um he uh to me and you mentioned this a bit that he really he exemplified weaponizing one's own history and one's own military service against others um, that, uh, you know, most people know he was a POW. He was uh, obviously a Vietnam combat veteran, a pilot, a friend of the military. How many people know his actual service record? How many people know the role that his father and his grandfather played in his career? How many people know how he behaved while he was in service and after service? using it in a, a self-serving manner at every single turn. Um, but, but, but when I went through the comments on your post, most of them were very, very boilerplate. And, you, and you'd see responses to a little more pointed comments with, well, he went through a lot of pain, or he went through a lot of harm, or he, he served his country you know, as a POW. And these are all natural conclusions to combat. They're not unknowable. They're not aliens landing out of the sky. So, and exactly what you said is that he, he wasn't intellectually honest at all about his experience in the military. He simply pushed for it. More money? Yes. More deployments? Yes. New countries Always. to bomb? Uh, bomb, 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 ran. Which is, I, I only say that because it, that's how horrifically, how simply he would just sing stuff like that. Right, and he and he meant it as a as a joke, but it was a serious joke. I mean, yeah, that's not that's not something to joke about. I mean, bombing another country is a very very existential decision. But with uh, you know, listeners, if if you guys hear people, veterans specifically, using statements, you know, like these about you know he was a POW and he suffered a lot, ask the person you're speaking to to point out how that's relevant. To all the other choices he made because there are plenty of other combat veterans who didn't choose to act that way and and then like you said you know is that today he's he's like a uh he's such an anomaly among common republicans and yet he's still that horrific in and of himself 
And I think that just goes to the propaganda that has always surrounded him and surrounded Vietnam in general. You know, we, we the guys came home and got spit on, and we're going to leave them alone and get them what they need, but we're not going to talk about the war, and we're not going to talk about horrific things that happened in the war. We can honor John McCain. Yeah, he went to Vietnam, and that was real sad. But we're not going to talk about why all of us went to Vietnam, you know, and it, it just it, it becomes another excuse to hide militarism and endless war. Well, you know, and it's interesting because not every veteran came to the same conclusion as John McCain. So John Kerry, who I'm not a huge fan of, but in his youth, even though he was a decorated Navy patrol boat combat veteran, you know, he threw his medals in the ocean and, and, and he spoke out against the war. Chuck Hagel, who was the Secretary of Defense for a while under President Barack Obama, also was against the war, and but he was in the infantry um, on the ground in Vietnam in the same squad as his brother, and I believe his brother was wounded. But, but the point is, you got to be careful with veterans' credentials. Because even though I do respect aspects of John McCain's career, I think using the veteran card is like using the race card. It's a dangerous proposition, and it needs to be used judiciously because simply being a veteran does not make you right about foreign policy. Because I would argue John McCain has been wrong, and I have actual empirical evidence to sort of prove that he has been wrong about every major foreign policy decision over the last 30 years. He's been wrong almost every time. He supported the Iraq War to the end. Long after it was clear that the Iraq War was a failure and based on lies. So I think the bigger story here, and you've brought it up yourself, is that maybe the fact that John McCain... Because John McCain is better than 90% of Republicans today in the House and Senate. Unfortunately, yeah. But the thing is, that's a low bar because John McCain wasn't great. No. And so if we're at a place where John McCain, and that's where my nostalgia came from, is because I, I live in this world of the Paul Ryans and the Mitch McConnells and their feckless bullshit. So McCain looks good in comparison because, you know, a couple of times he made the right call. But that just shows how low our politics have gone. Yeah, I saw a similar parallel uh, this last week with, uh, with the Kavanaugh hearings that I can't remember the name of the case that he continued to put up as an example of his ability to, it was him siding with the terrorist. Uh, I can't, I'm tr trying to remember who it was. It was one of the uh, planners of September 11th, I believe. Um, but it, almost anybody can take, take their career, whatever career they have, and they can take moments from it and point to those moments as being an idea of, well, yeah, I can do that. Check this out this one time. But sir, the other 999 times you sided with corporations or with the military or with the government over citizens' rights. But, but, but that, and, and again, like you said, is because this bar is so effing low, it, 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 what is the what is the admission to entry? I mean, is it just that we've lied enough that it seems okay? You know, they've, you know, Mike Pompeo kind of did his comb over of his military career, and now we can just move past it. And then then we have the tiny little comments that everybody loves, and he suffered a lot, and God bless the military, and all that. 
I think John McCain, his legend grew over the years. And part of the reason it did is because fewer and fewer congressmen and senators were veterans because we got rid of the draft. So that World War II generation started dying off in the 1990s. And a guy like McCain is kind of the last man standing. He's the rare veteran in a Congress full of lawyers who've never served a day in their life. And so by comparison, McCain is an obvious choice for like the hero worship. But really, I think the story is one that's more of how off track our society has gotten because the types of people who become congressmen are not the types of people that would ever think of serving in the military. And I think that's a bigger story. So McCain's lying in state and his whole publicity campaign, I think, is as much about American guilt as it is about his actual service. Um, and I know that's a bold statement, but I think there's some truth in it. Oh, we have to we, we, we have to come to terms with that, but we've we've been given these like you said about him laying in state, these these placeholders, these curtains that go over any real questions that people might ask. And right. How do we get you know, I I, I ask myself sometimes if I was if I never served, how would I get over the I don't want to call it the yuck factor, but the, the morbid factor of saying, I, I acknowledge this death over here, but I still have questions about how this happened. And, you know, it, bec it comes immediately so polarizing depending on what side of it you decide to come down on. I think the least we can say is that John McCain had a few brave moments, but his career overall was detrimental to the goals of a progressive movement. So... John McCain wasn't necessarily a senatorial hero. He was just better than the masses of congressmen and senators, but at a time when the masses were so awful that the bar was very low. And I think that's the best way to put it. As we transition out of this McCain talk, which is it's a tough... It's a tough conversation. I mean, it, it really is because you, you, you want to honor a man, but you also don't want to um, sanctify a man just because he's dead. You know, in other words, like his death doesn't obviate him of the responsibility for his flaws. But um, it made me start thinking about this administration, the Trump administration. And, I, and I'm not going to take a stand on it because he's still my commander in chief and I'm still under the UCMJ. But he had a public feud with John McCain. And, and I thought it was not only silly but immature. This whole aspect of Trump saying that McCain's not a hero and he likes guys who don't get captured or whatever that means. I mean, it's kind of silly because McCain didn't want to get captured. He got hit with a missile. Like, th these things happen, you know. And someone like Trump, who's never served, I mean, doesn't even understand the probability of all that. But 
This past week, there was an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. It's pretty unheard of, by the way. I mean, I've done some research. This does not happen, okay? Uh, eight years of George Bush, this did not happen. Eight years of Barack Obama, this did not happen. But someone who the New York Times claims, at least, and I want to believe them, is a senior administration official, wrote an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times, wherein the author said um, many things, but two that stand out to me. That one, President Trump is a threat to national security. And number two, that he is immoral. And I, I think I'm laying that out pretty much verbatim. And no one knows what to think about this. I mean, there's a lot of ways to take it. The author was pretty self-aggrandizing. The author – and we don't know who the author is. We may, we'll probably never know. The author's take was that he or she is a hero because he or she – is working within the administration to mollify the insanity of some of President Trump's decisions. Now, I'm not going to take a position on whether his positions are insane or whether Trump is good or bad. I, I can't take that position because the listeners know that I'm still on active duty. But what bothered me was this celebration of the author as some sort of hero. And let me explain why. If the author is truly a senior Trump administration official, and we don't know what senior means. I mean, it's pretty vague, right? Is he a deputy? Is he a primary? Is he in the cabinet? Is he not? We don't know. But if the author is truly a senior administration official, and if the author truly believes that President Trump is immoral and a threat to our national security, then at least my position is that an anonymous op-ed is pretty cowardly. Because if the things the author said are true, and I don't know if they are, I have an opinion I'm not going to give, but if the accusations of immorality and trumping a threat to national security are in fact true – then you have an obligation, to my mind, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, Henry, but you as an official have an obligation to go public uh, with this and, and use your name and then resign. Because the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which is the only mechanism to remove a president for supposed like mental health or – insanity or whatever, and I'm not saying President Trump has that. Let me be clear again. But if the things in the article are true, this author should have resigned publicly and said these things publicly. This whole idea that there are, quote, adults in the room is ludicrous to me because – they can only mitigate so much. In the end, the president is the most powerful person in the country. And it interests me that the author, whoever this anonymous author is, chose to spoke, speak out now. 
And if you read the article, he says nothing about the separation of families and children in immigration. Says nothing about the travel ban on Muslims. This author doesn't respect the president's morality, but this author has been complicit in President Trump's administration, it seems. And the reason, it seems, his motivation, his or her motivation, it seems, is, well, he wanted some tax cuts. So we're willing to put up with Trump. And this is the problem of the Republican Party more generally. Paul Ryan will stand up there and make excuses for President Trump over and over again, no matter how unconscionable the phrase or the event, because Paul Ryan wants what Paul Ryan has always wanted, which is less regulation, less taxes. So they'll put up with the president that they may not particularly like, personality-wise, in order to get their agenda passed. So my take, and I, and I want to hear what you think about this, but my take is that this like anonymous op-ed in the New York Times was not nearly as courageous as it's been made out to be. In my in my next headline, we get to a problem with with sources and anonymous writers a little bit, and I'm I'm yeah. It, why would this person not be willing to resign whatever post they hold and let their name give credence to this information? You know, and and by doing it, I you know I I I immediately move to who I think is the only person that could benefit from something like this because as you mentioned they were still perfectly acceptable to some of the nastier parts of the Trump administration's policies. So to me, I, I think it's Mike Pence. I would, that would be the one person. And I know people have made the mention about the, the use of that word and everything that could have been just somebody trying to throw off the scent by throwing it in there. But at this particular point in Trump's presidency, Mike Pence has the most to gain by Trump falling out. And also you have the, the double hit in that, one, the country is now talking about this op-ed. And number two, hold on, I lost it there for a second. Um, um, oh, and that, that if it is Pence, this is, has to be driving Trump insane. That he, he absolutely detests people leaking on him. So right. kind, kind of a, a, a two-pronged thing there. But yeah, no, I, the, the fact that the person wasn't willing to come out attach their name to it, say, hey, yes, I work here. Yes, I do this. Yes, this is happening. It, it lost all credibility with me. It just, it, it, you know, you, there has to be something that we can attach to tangible information, and there's nothing here. So, And if it was Mike Pence, and we don't know, we'll never know probably. If it was, think about how powerful it would be if a vice president came out and said this. I mean, it would be historic. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, to, uh, to my knowledge, and I'm like an American history professor, like, to my knowledge, there's never been anything like this. It, and, and, and like, if, if it is Mike Pence, he's having to, to ride a very careful line here. Because if it ever comes out at any point in the future that it was him, he'll not only lose credibility with liberals, but with conservatives as well. They, they expect them to tell very specific lies. If they deviate from those lies, that's when they get excommunicated, so to speak, as far as party goes that I've seen. So, Oh, it's very interesting. Um, 
I wonder if this is going to open the floodgates for more op-eds or more people speaking out. Um, President Trump's response to it has been extraordinarily authoritarian. This idea that he wants the New York Times to turn over their source as a matter of national security, that that frightens me. Um, Because criticism of the president is not a national security issue, and it's also enshrined in our First Amendment rights. So even though I don't think this was a very brave move, and I'm somewhat critical of the author of the op-ed, the idea from President Trump that we should somehow jail this person is very disturbing. That's horrifying. Right? Yeah. I never in my life believed that I would hear a president say something like that. You know, if this had happened to President Barack Obama, he would have been livid. Just like anybody would. But do you think President Barack Obama or even President George W. Bush, who I hated, okay, do you think they would go on TV and call this treason and, and, and demand the New York Times give their source up? I, I can't imagine that happening no. because that would be so far outside the political norms that those two gentlemen operated under for all their flaws. But it is a, it is a huge risk that the Trump voters took in 2016 to elect this man who's never served in government. And it wasn't like his, uh, his habits, his, his, his mannerisms weren't completely known when he was elected. Like you said, it was a, it was a choice to bring in someone that was going to do specifically what they wanted. Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, those guys didn't, they weren't concerned about having somebody who was going to be measured they wanted someone to be the easy signature stamp. And now now we're left in this situation. And not that I believe everything in the op-ed, but I do agree that there certainly has to be a lot of things we haven't been told. We've seen what Trump does when he's in front of the camera. We certainly don't know what happens behind the camera, at least not with any amount of accuracy. And if it's anything like what goes on in front of the camera, it's disturbing to begin with. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, so that was my first headline for the day, and uh, I just thought it was worth mentioning. Um, you know, as we transition now to your first headline, I think you know the takeaway for listeners is to be skeptical, take a three hundred and sixty look at what's going on in the administration. Don't necessarily buy the MSNBC or CNN or Fox News line on all this because you know. They're so ensconced in the mainstream that they don't even ask the critical questions that I think and hope we're asking today. Agreed. Agreed. So we're going to move on to my my first one for today. Um, The U.S. military is still really early in the process of bringing female soldiers and Marines into combat jobs. And I read this morning that uh, on the 31st, on August 31st, a Staff Sergeant Amanda Kelly, who's an electronic warfare technician stationed at Fort Bliss, received her Ranger tab. And that's huge, especially for somebody who's in a a specifically non-combat job. Um, For those that don't know, uh, the Ranger tab is awarded to graduates of Ranger School, which essentially is around two straight months of hell. It's It's a combat leaders course that spends time training students in three different climates. 
um, with each soldier, regardless of rank, being rotated into a leadership position. So uh, I don't know if you know, Danny, but I want to say people don't even wear rank there. That they, they're given... Yeah, that's right. They don't. They don't. They are, no, there's no rank, so yep. everyone is the same. Yep. If you're a private or you're a captain, you're, you're the same. And a private could be in charge of a group of officers in that, in that circumstance. So the course has a really high attrition rate. Um, in this latest class that Staff Sergeant Kelly made it through, she was one of 127 soldiers that graduated out of 347. Um, other branches, in fact, send their troops to Ranger School because of how good the training is and how hard it is. Now that makes what we're going to discuss here all the more difficult to hear. Um, and this story is not about Staff Sergeant Kelly. This is about a different uh, female soldier. Um, but for additional contrast to the story, I'm going to read um, different paragraphs of two different articles on the exact same topic to point out a few things. So our first story is from Army Times, and it begins with that a company first sergeant began an affair with one of the first women to graduate from infantry basic training shortly after she reported to her newly integrated unit. Um, both have been punished for it. Now we move to a website called popularmilitary.com, and this is also the first paragraph in the story. An airborne infantryman with knowledge of the explicit sexual affair between an acting first sergeant and a female infantry pr private is calling the young soldier out, claiming she has been unable to resist sexual encounters with her male counterparts since arriving at the unit. Now, both both articles overall are, are are pretty boilerplate in how they're how they're broken down. It's much more the point of view that the author pushes into the story, specifically in the one about popular from popularmilitary.com, one that's wholly unsupported by facts, as the writer of that article and the source that the writer quotes in the article are completely anonymous. So I'm going to move to the next set, and I think, I think it's a little more apparent as we move down here. So, from the Army Times again. Sergeant First Class Chase Usher, who was serving as the top NCO, the first sergeant of B Company, 2nd Battalion, 505th Paratroop Infantry Regiment, um, 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, has been removed from his position, leading soldiers, and is serving a staff role, um, an 82nd Airborne spokesman told Army Times on Tuesday. Now, second paragraph, popularmilitary.com. The paratrooper, whose identity has been withheld due to concerns of retaliation by the Army, previously uh, served with the unit I just mentioned, um, and the unit now known for the first documented sexual scandal between a senior non-commissioned officer and a female infantry private. Now, notice with the Army Times part that it has the spotlight of the article placed on the senior leader, on the acting first sergeant of the company, who is the person truly responsible here. But if we were only to read the popularmilitary.com one, the onus has now been changed onto the female, uh, uh, discussing, quote, for, uh, the first documented sexual scandal, inferring that there may be many more, albeit simply undocumented. Okay, so next we have uh, a paragraph about the discipline that they received. Disciplinary action deemed appropriate by the chain of command was taken against both individuals and has been completed, says the, the division spokesman. 
Both continued to serve within the, the division. However, the first sergeant was relieved of his position and currently serves on the staff of a different unit. Now we're on to discipline for popularmilitary.com. Acting First Sergeant for Bravo Company, at the time of the sexual encounter, Sergeant First Class Chase Usher began sleeping with the private less than 90 days after she became one of the first generation of females to join an airborne infantry unit. The two reportedly carried on a sexual relationship which lasted for several months in 2017. Sergeant First Class Usher was removed from his position in the aftermath of the scandal and has since been... Uh, uh, I can't remember the word, uh, regulated, Danny, am I saying that? Uh, uh, reduced, but put in a, a lesser position. Yeah. Reduced in rank. Yeah. yeah. Um, and put to a staff role, presumably under heavy supervision. It is unknown exactly the punishment the private received, although a source who knew both of them personally told popularmilitary.com that she received an article 15. Now, the RB Times quote gave us specific punishment information for both the NCO we're talking about and the female infantry private. But popularmilitary.com's paragraph continues to discuss about punishment attempts using an anonymous source to prove any other facts. Now, the remainder of the Army Times article discusses uh, an overview of women integrated into combat jobs including several officers that are now leading Army infantry units, along with uh, quotes of some soldiers that served with Sergeant First Class Usher. The main theme that the Army Times article creates here is that it's about the leader's choices, not the soldiers. Now I'm going to read the rest of the popularmilitary.com article. It's not very long, but it is really hard to hear. The outgoing paratrooper, the, the source who verified his unit affiliations via unclassified DOD paperwork, said that in many, of their, uh, many in their battalion knew it was inevitable that the soldier would sleep around with higher leadership. Quote, we all saw it coming and knew she was sexually soliciting multiple leaders within our unit and having inappropriate relationships. It makes me angry because this is what we expected with the new integration, and I'd like it known the full extent of what's happening in infantry line units with integrated females. The source then mentions that while Sergeant First Class Usher, quote, knew better, the private knew it was wrong and was not punished as severely as the NCO, receiving only an Article 15 as well as extra duty or potential reduction in rank. Quote, he was a leader and knew better, but so did she. All the command did was give her an Article 15. They didn't even move her to another unit, which is basic protocol for fraternization. Um, the source says she's not terribly popular in Bravo Company, where she's been known to fall out of physical events such as ruck marches, creating an uncomfortable environment for the male soldiers, and blaming her shortcomings on sexual discrimination. Some of my, uh, this is a, I think this is the last quote. Some of my closest friends who were assigned, assigned in Bravo Company at the time of the incident said that multiple investigations, that the multiple investigations that her relationship with Usher brought on made it a very uncomfortable work environment, the source said. And he ended the article with, quote, I saw firsthand what integrating women into combat arms has done to that unit. Now, this came across my Twitter feed. I try whenever I see websites that are about military or veteran topics that I've never heard of before to go there and just kind of get the lay of the land, see what it was about. And... 
I'd, I've heard of popularmilitary.com a few times, and I, I, I don't recall any other stories other than this one. But the last part of the story I wanted to share about is about the photographs that are included with the picture with the articles. Originally, when I first started this article, there were an assortment of pictures of a female soldier, both in army uniforms and in civilian attire, attached to a single grainy picture purported to be of the, this first sergeant dancing with the private at a local bar. Now, there's a note at the top of this article that say those pics were taken down shortly short time later as they were able to figure out that the woman in all the pictures that I assume they got from Facebook or somewhere similar wasn't the person in the grainy photograph. They literally didn't even check to see if they were doing it with the right person. Wow. Now those pics were taken down a short time later and only the single grainy pic of them dancing remains. As the anonymous author noted, they were noted the other ones were pictures of the wrong soldiers. The Army Times article stated that the grainy pick was sent to the soldier's leadership by someone at U.S. Army WhatTheFuckMoments.com. That's a different, a, a different Army news site. Um, and that prior to these articles, the pick had made the rounds through their battalion via a group text. Now, this, all of this right here is right in line with Marines United, with other exploitive, exploitative acts that male service members have done towards their female counterparts. This is the reality that women have going into the military. And these particular women have, a, I don't know how many times harder because they are changing the culture, albeit a culture we chose. We chose to not have women in combat. Women have been in combat since the beginning of time, but we've chosen to ignore that and to uh, only talk about the history that, uh, that suits us. So the last thing I'm going to do for the story today is I want to read a Twitter thread that I wrote that night. And I think it really nicely sums up all the anger and hostility I have about this. So here we go. I spent over six years in the United States Army. In that time, I observed a world and culture that is so nasty and misogynistic, it's a wonder any women would consider enlisting, let alone spend a career in that environment. I served with female soldiers that were every drop of their being a soldier as any man in uniform. And I saw NCOs take advantage of young female soldiers repeatedly. They were, quote, sluts who fucked everyone or, quote, prude cunts who wouldn't put out. Those NCOs who sometimes didn't objectify them usually worked to broom them really fast. Now, given this environment, sending a single and I mean single as in by herself, a single by herself female soldier to the infantry unit, the first, one of the first female soldiers to do, this would require actual leaders. Leaders that deliberately choose not to fuck their soldiers. Leaders that deliberately choose to protect them from predatory asshats. Then we arrive at this article, written by an anonymous writer who used an anonymous source who firmly believed in their position, but had not the stones to stamp their sign on this piece of shit. Awfully convenient that this shitbag had all the facts without sourcing any of them. Finally, the writer places the complete onus on this soldier, as if this new grunt, however good or bad a soldier she is, is responsible for keeping the advances of an entire infantry company away from her. Where is her leadership? Where's her team leader? Squad leader, platoon sergeant, lieutenant. Those fucks are responsible for this. If I still had a female soldier 
and I had a sergeant first class. We're talking about a senior level, someone who's been in the army a long time. Sergeant first class sniffing around, I would tell whoever it was to fuck right off. I don't care the rank, fuck right off. Dear God, someone please report me and punish me for it. Leaders protect their troops, full stop. Willing to go to war, but unwilling to protect your troops? Go the fuck home. Troops work hard for good leaders. DOD can shit the rest out for all I care. And, and that's not to mention little things like rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, retaliation from leaders, and so forth. But hey, one, hor one horrific aspect of military service women at a time. This article will be turned into a weapon against female interests in the combat jobs. Like they needed another fucking challenge to equality in the military. Oh, and I almost forgot. Last thing. Women have been in combat since cavemen existed. I know I talked about that a minute ago, but the idea that we're trying something new, it really demonstrates our collective ignorance over the treatment of women historically, especially in relation to being in the military and fighting wars, and that we, Americans, have pushed women out by choice. So, rant, rant concluded. Just to put it in perspective, this woman gets sent, this poor woman gets sent alone to an infantry unit, She's a token woman. She is one of the first of her kind, right, to go to a unit. And then we're going to victim blame this person. And it's so typical, you know. We got to put the onus on her. It can't be her shitty leader. It has to be, well, she dressed a certain way. Well, she flirted a certain way. You know, they want to they victim blame. And they sent her alone. Which is already problematic. Okay, when I taught at West Point, we had only 16 students in every class. Okay, small classes. They never put a single female in a class. There was a rule. And in fact, my second year teaching, I was in charge of setting up the classes. I was in charge of putting students in classes. And one of the rules at West Point was you never put a woman alone. So you always have at least two females in a class of 16. Now... West Point has had women since 1980, so this, you know, which is ridiculous that it took that long, but it's it's been a while, okay, right? It's been 38, 39 years. Um, we still protect women there by making sure that there's not just one, okay? Um, we try to do the same thing with minority groups as well. How the Army has not taken on something similar as a protective measure, as a comforting measure for these women entering combat units is appalling. It shows a complete lack of planning for this. This is a major change. Let's be honest. Women have always been in combat. You're totally right. Since forever. Okay. Like literally forever. But it is a big cultural change. It, but it, this is a huge cultural change in the United States Army to put women in the infantry. Okay. We need to be very judicious about how we do it. We don't need to throw a woman to the wolves. No. And then when she makes a mistake or is taken advantage of or a little bit of both, I mean, we, we'll never know the full situation, nor should we try. Then to victim blame her is just appalling. So, guys, please do a favor for me if you can. Stop by popularmilitary.com and tell them that you heard about this story. Tell them how you feel about it. The site itself is owned and operated by a company called Bright Mountain Media. 
And a trip to Google tells me that this particular company has created a bunch of similar military-themed websites which cater in this kind of news. I'm, I'm assuming that they also have the same kind of anonymous writer problems, but I plan to continue working on figuring out who runs the site, and I want to get some kind of response from them. I, I, do, I don't have much hope for it, but I think people need to know that this is the kind of news that they cater in. Absolutely. So, Danny, what's your uh, what's your last headline for today? Well, my last headline is depressing, Henry. Um, the sixth soldier of 2018 was killed in Afghanistan this past past week, a week ago. Um, that's not a lot compared to when I was in Afghanistan in 2011. We were losing 60 to 90 a month. It's not even close to when I was in Iraq in 2006 and 2007, we were losing 120 to 150 a month. But six dead American soldiers in a place like Afghanistan is six too many. This last soldier was a victim of a, quote, insider attack, also known as a green on blue attack. Green referring to our Afghan partners and blue referring to the good guys, the Americans, right? Um... And it got me thinking about the war in Afghanistan again. And I just, I, I've beaten this horse to death. I'm writing a long pamphlet for a think tank right now about why we need to leave Afghanistan. But someone owes me, and more importantly, owes that family of this dead soldier an explanation of precisely what we're doing in Afghanistan in 2018. Someone needs to give me that answer. When that person gives me the answer, they need to address three things. Number one, the political environment in Afghanistan. Number two, the security environment in Afghanistan. And number three, the economic situation in Afghanistan. Those are the three main factors that we can judge by. We've been there 17 years, the longest war in our history by a lot. What are the outcomes? What are the metrics? Well, I'll tell you. Politically, the government is at a complete breakdown. There was a corrupt and disputed presidential election years back. The Americans came up with a compromise solution in order to stem the crisis. But in the Aftermath, minority groups, non-Pashtu, okay, the Pashtu dominate the south and the east of Afghanistan, represent about 43% of the population. These minority groups, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, the Hazara, have actually formed a, a coalition against the government. So there's this split in the government between different ethnic factions. We saw this in Iraq too, was, except in Iraq it was more based on religion. This is a serious problem because there are legitimacy concerns about the Afghan government. So Afghanistan is in a worse situation politically today than it was 10 years ago when we had closer to 100,000 soldiers there. Which takes us to security. How is security going? Not well. 
not well. A higher percentage of districts in Afghanistan are either controlled or contested. Controlled or contested by the Taliban than at any time since 2001. Meaning the war has only deteriorated despite 17 years of American presence. There's nowhere safe. The president of Afghanistan was in the middle of the green zone or international zone of Kabul, which is the most highly secured place in the country, and his speech got interrupted a couple weeks back by mortar rounds falling. There have been massive suicide attacks in the downtown section of Kabul, which is supposed to be the most stable part of Afghanistan. All the security metrics tell us that we are losing. And then there's economics. Afghanistan's GDP is about $62 billion a year based on power purchasing parity or PPP. doesn't sound too bad. It's actually terrible when you compare it to other countries. That's their entire GDP. But what if I told you that 95% of their GDP was based on foreign aid from countries like the United States? Furthermore, the Afghan government only brings in $2 billion a year in tax revenue. So the government budget from Afghan domestic sources is $2 billion a year. But here's the problem. How much does the Afghan government spend every year? Well, expenditures are $7.5 billion. $5 billion of which goes to their army and police. Where does that money come from? You guessed it, the American taxpayer and NATO taxpayers. This is an unsustainable formula for perpetual innervation. intervention. Afghanistan only brings in $2 billion a year, but has to spend $7.5 just to maintain the status quo. That means if the United States doesn't bail out, we are signed on for $5.5 billion for Afghanistan indefinitely. Which brings me back to the soldier who was killed in an insider attack, shot in the back by one of his own allies, purported allies, ostensible allies. When are we going to have a national debate about this? When are we going to actually ask the hard questions like, is this worth it? Can America win? Is it in America's interest to win? What does winning mean? We don't answer any of those questions. What we do is we maintain the status quo and we maintain a strategic inertia that keeps us going forever. I'm sick for the family of the soldier killed, shot in the back by an Afghan this past week. And I'll tell you, I'm ready for a national debate on this. And if we can't do it, if we can't stop for a moment as a people and put down our iPhones and shut off the Kardashians and ask what the fuck is going on in America's longest war? Can we win? And if we can't, should we follow what Trump called his original instincts? Which was to immediately depart. And for once, Donald, I think you're dead on. And you should have followed your instincts. I don't even know what that would look like if if he really did really did do it. I, I... We, we've we've never had to 
retrograde such a large operation. I hate that word, but, you know, I don't even know what that would look like. And the vacuum we'd create, would it be just, you know, whatever new version of ISIS or other terrorist group would be able to come up, you know. We'd just be handing power to the Taliban, wouldn't we? I don't see the Taliban as a threat to the United States. No, you're right about that. No, they can't even write their own names. They they can't yeah. find America on a map. They want to control Afghanistan. They're not coming for us. There was no Taliban on the planes on 9/11. No, no. Yeah, they provided safe haven. But fuck that logic means that we should be in. We should invade every Middle Eastern country or every greater Middle Eastern and North African country because they all provide safe haven Al Qaeda. Yeah, yeah. We don't have the troops, the capacity, or the will to do that. So why stay in Afghanistan indefinitely? It's a losing war. If yeah. I've never been so sure of anything in my life, bro. If I if I was a betting man, I would put all my chips in on this one. All of them. Like my fucking car, my firstborn son. They would all get thrown in the middle because that's how confident I am that the war in Afghanistan is going to fail. Just don't, just don't give away Sam. I like Sam. <laughs> well, I said my firstborn son. <laughs> I'm keeping the second one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. He's got the red hair and the blue eyes. Very rare. No, but but the uh, the justifications these days, you know, this is like we're talking about being in every country that we really have to get down to brass tacks with people about the difference between doing a military intervention somewhere and knowing that they're not necessarily our friends. It, 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 we have to find some middle ground in there so that we're not, and it, it's just, I don't even, I don't know that it's military worship, but it, it, it seems that way. It seems like any kind of moral ambiguity that somebody can see in a military intervention situation. Oh yeah, we need to teach them a lesson. We need to, you know, if we, if we leave now, you know, there's people are going to be bitching about Vietnam again, but the, uh, sorry, I lost my thought there. Problematic endeavor. I mean, if the only thing keeping you in a country or in keeping you in a war is fear that you'll look weak if you leave, you know, if it's just a credibility issue, that that tells you something's wrong. America shouldn't be fighting wars, killing and dying for credibility. We should be killing and dying for vital national security interests, and I don't think there are any major vital national security interests in Afghanistan. But here's the thing. No matter what you say or what I say, no matter how much I write about this, I've probably written 12 articles about Afghanistan. I mean, honestly, I mean, if I'm last year, I wrote 77 articles, probably nine of them are about Afghanistan. I mean, I've written so many and I'm not going to fix it. But it's it scares me because you and I both know Trump's not getting impeached. He's not all this talk about like, oh, the Mueller probe is going to take him down. It's not. He might even get reelected. But even if he doesn't get reelected, when he leaves office, America will be entering its 20th year in Afghanistan. Next year, this very next year, children born after 9-11 will join the army and go to Afghanistan. What does that portend for the health of the republic? That's a scary thing. That has never happened in American history, where a father served in a war. 20 years later, he sends his high school graduate son to fight in the same war, maybe the same province. It's, it, this isn't 
George Marshall once said, World War II, chief of staff of the army, once said that a democracy can't fight a seven years war. And his point was that Republican institutions die when the threat of permanent war kind of corrodes the public space. I wonder what George Marshall will think if he saw a 20-year war, because that's what the war in Afghanistan is going to be. We will be celebrating the 20th anniversary of this, I promise you. No matter who wins the elections in November, no matter who wins the elections in 2020, nobody is taking us out of there before 20 years. We've got to eat that. We've got to live with that. And I'm scared to death of what it means for our country. Yeah, I, I, I listened to Chris Hedges on uh, Ralph Nader a, a couple weeks ago, and his new book is called America, A Farewell Tour. Yeah, it's on my it's on my counter right now. Yeah, I, I've been meaning to read it too. And he, he went through all of that real succinctly, not just Afghanistan, but the other places we are right now. And, and that exactly what you're saying, that, that the, the literal and metaphorical weight on the country, especially the, the amount of money we put into the military, it, 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 we're crumbling. It just, it, you can't, there's no other way to see it. And if we continue, it, it, America's going to be done. It is. And so, you know, I'll end it with this. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for the family. I couldn't imagine being the officer who had to go tell the family that their son was dead, their husband was dead, their brother was dead. Because I would be terrified that they would ask me why. That they would ask me, what was it all for? Um... Because I would not have a good answer for that. And the day you stop having an answer for that, that's the day it's time to start dissenting. Yep. Absolutely. So I, I, I want to give you a congratulations or a kind of congratulations, I suppose. Uh, you got your first Twitter troll. I did. I definitely did. And man, he's annoying. I, uh, <laughs> um, you, you want to tell a little bit about that? Well, of course it, you know, partly derives from the McCain thing. Um, it partly derives from, the fact that I'm still on active duty, which I think really upsets this person. Yeah. The idea that because I have not yet resigned, although I'm retiring in a medically retiring in a couple of months or less, that somehow I'm part of the problem because I'm not courageous for speaking out against the government or speaking out against the military because I'm still getting a military paycheck. And and that seems to be the biggest concern of this individual. And, you know, I've tried to grow up and not get defensive and tried to see the point of view of my critics. And there's something to be said for his critique. But I think it ignores the long history of military members speaking out against the grain while in uniform or recently out of uniform. We're talking about Smedley Butler, you know, 
We're talking about Andrew Bacevich. We're talking about a long and healthy tradition of military men and women speaking out against the wars they've been a part of. And, and just because you, you didn't have the, quote, courage to resign as soon as you realized something was wrong, I think is a dangerous cop-out. Because it's going to silence a lot of voices that are actually allied with us. Yeah. And, and so that's my big concern with, with my troll. Um, I'm used to negative comments on the net. Um, if you write publicly, you got to have a thick skin. Oh, so yeah. I have that. But, yeah, I, I just don't – I don't accept the logic that because I'm still in the Army or that I've been in the Army for much of the time I've been speaking out against the war, that that somehow makes me a less credible source. I – by that logic, we would never listen to anyone in the military, and we would never get an insider's account. Yeah. And to me, we should want people to be dissenting while on active duty because they are the best. They are the best view we have into the system as it is, right? The you know the most updated version of what's going on in this crazy world. Uh, it it seemed to me like he he really wanted to see something out of you that was similar to what he wrote about on his blog. And I tried to go through it. You know, I wanted to see if his name was in there at all so I could have some kind of third-party verification for some of the information he said. And I couldn't find it. But, um, yeah, no, I, 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 can't, I can't see a place where you would be, where, what would be more advantageous for you as somebody who wants to fight against militarism and endless war is to be right where you are right now. Um, you know, and, and like you said, is that, is that if we're unwilling to accept the dissent or a specific kind of dissent from former service members, where does that leave us to learn anything about war or military service or anything that has to do with our military today? You're absolutely right. And, it, it, you know, sometimes the left can be a bit much, and I'm a person of the left, but some people look for a level of purity in their spokespeople and expect a level of purity that does not exist. In real life, we're all contradictions. We're all walking contradictions. I admit that it is a contradiction that I've been in the Army since I was 17, and now I make a living out of speaking out against the Army. I admit that that is a contradiction but in a gray world which is the world we live in we have to be open-minded to such contradictions we have to be open-minded to the fact that human nature is messy and complex and we can't silence voices just because they're not exactly like ours we need to recognize allies where there are we might find an ally that we don't necessarily agree with everything he says for example libertarians libertarians are a great ally for us on foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I think they're lunatics on like healthcare and taxes. Yeah. And domestic policy. I can't stand them. But I work with libertarians because we have common cause on a very important issue, which is American militarism. And so there is a you can't be so ideologically pure that you're not willing to work with like minded fellows because if you do that then you end up alone. Yep. And you end up being marginalized and you have side movement in the dark that no one listens to. 
it doesn't mean you have to compromise who you are. It just means you have to be open-minded to people that aren't exactly like you, but might have the same interests in mind. And I, and I, and I, I think sometimes on the far left and the far right, there's an ideological purity that can be actually detrimental to the movement. Now, there was a, an old George Carlin special where um, he, had, he had mentioned to people who said that, that if, if you hear me up, up here on stage railing against commercialism and other parts of excessive consumption, but you also hear that I do commercials for 1010220, um, if you're having any cognitive dissonance about that, you just need to figure that the fuck out on your own. Um, but, but it, you know, that, right. you know, and, 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 and like you said, you know, is that, that it, the real rub here comes from what you just described about, I have an ideological difference with you and therefore I can't speak to you because of that difference. And that means that our ability to have any kind of intersectionality with anybody with common experience, if we don't pass their purity tests and we're just not allowed to the game. And that, that's just like, it's just a shutdown for debate. It just, it, it's no different right. than people trying to say that my service in the military was less because I wasn't this or that or yours was, and that it's our job to be honest about how we serve, but people shouldn't be able to shut that down simply by saying that you have something because it's no different than it, intellectually. It's no different than bigotry. It, it, it's just about ideas. It's just about your, you think this and I have deemed you unacceptable. Right. You know, you and I are big boys and girls. We've chosen a public persona. We're opening ourselves up to trolls and attacks and I get them all the time. I've had death threats. I mean, I, I could tell stories, but kind of crazy shit I've had emailed to me or even sent to my house and people find out my address somehow, which is crazy. I don't know how they can do that, but they do. Um, you know, I, I'm always amazed by the power of these people, the obsessiveness of these people that don't, they don't just disagree with you, but they like take it personal and want to come after you and yeah. you know i think that stifles debate and it's it's reflective of our american moment that is so divided so terribly divided you know um i, I think this is more of a symptom than a problem itself no i uh we have a, another vet spar event coming up here in the in the Portland area. Um, for those that don't know, uh, vet spar is just a it's an organization that's here in the Portland, Oregon area that puts together veterans and civilians to talk about military service in in, in a lot of different ways. And I'm, I'm I feel really blessed to be able to participate in some of those. That the hearing about people's experiences and anybody can have a military experience. That's another right. thing that trolls won't, won't allow people is, Oh, if you didn't serve, then you don't know. Well, combat right. is not exclusive to military service. They're not, they're not mutually exclusive, but, but so often people are just tossed to the side. And if we're just willing to sit and listen a bit longer, it, it, it will help a great deal. But, People don't want to listen. People want to, they want to troll. They want their quick fix. They want their Ron Paul 2012 moment. Nothing against Ron Paul, but just the, the, the people that 
put that everywhere or used to put that everywhere, but it, but it has no, it furthers nothing. It furthers no conversation. It doesn't help anybody do anything. Totally agree. Totally 100% agree. And, you know, listen, uh, my troll has his opinions. Uh, I respect them, but uh, I think, you know, the, the key takeaway here is that we've got to be willing to have substantive debate and spread the boundaries um, of what we're willing to talk about. Because if we all get in our narrow echo chambers, it's not going to help anyone. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.